Check, check. All right. Romans 1. Is that where we were? All right. So if you'll follow along, uh, follow along with me and please stand um, in honor of God's word as we read from Romans 1, verses 8 through 17. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I mention you always in my prayers, asking that somehow by God's will I may now at last succeed in coming to you. For I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. That is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented, in order that I may reap some harvest among you as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to foolish. So I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You can be seated. As you do, I'm going to go to the Lord in prayer one more time. Heavenly Father, we ask now just that you would open our eyes and um, open our hearts to, to hear what you have to say to us this morning. Lord, speak through your spirit, um, through your servants listen. Amen. So if I could go anywhere in the world, if someone offered to pay for Becca and I to go on vacation, I would choose Rome in a heartbeat. Like, I would love to see just the, the centuries of culture that has been, that has, um, been in the city of Rome. We have the Colosseum, the Roman Forum, the Vatican, Sistine Chapel, just to walk around and see just the centuries of architecture and culture that exists in Rome, to eat my weight in pasta. And so Paul is writing the book of Romans, the letter of Romans, to say, I'm coming to Rome. I've been planning this trip I've been wanting to come for a while, and I'm finally going to make it. And in our text this morning, he's laying out his travel agenda. He's saying, I'm coming, and while I'm there, this is what I want to do. And he has two things. First, he wants to encourage the Roman Christians. And then secondly, he wants to preach the gospel. He wants to do evangelism. And Paul's travel agenda that he lays out here gives us a really great blueprint for the ministry that God calls all of us to carry out. So he starts in verses 8 through 12 with the ministry of encouragement, that we're called to encourage each other. And then in verses 13 through 15, he moves on to the ministry of evangelism. And then verses 16 through 17, he talks about the gospel that is at the heart of both. Right, so that's our kind of the breakdown of this text. Is he starts with the ministry of encouragement, then the ministry of evangelism, and then the gospel that's at the heart of them both. In verses 8 through 12, right, Paul lays out the first purpose he has in coming to Rome. We see that explicitly in verses 11 and 12. 
He says, for I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. And then in verse 12, he explains what the gift is that he wants to, to give them. He says, that is, that we may be mutually encouraged by one another's faith. So Paul's first, the first item on his agenda is to come and encourage the believers in Rome. And to be encouraged by them as well. Paul is basically, he's just coming to engage in Christian fellowship with the Roman church. He wants to tell them stories of God's faithfulness to him. He wants to hear stories of God's faithfulness to them. He wants to come so that they can build one another up. But I love here that Paul doesn't just talk about encouraging them. He doesn't just say, hey, when I get there, I want want us to encourage each other. He actually starts this text by encouraging them. In verse 8, he says, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you. I don't know if you've ever had someone say to you, like, I thank God for you. To go beyond just like, hey, you did a really great job. To add on, hey, you did a really great job, and it meant something to me. Because that's what Paul is saying. He's saying, Look, your faith is known in all the world. You're being faithful believers, and that has had an impact on me. It feels really good to have someone say that to you, to have someone say, hey, I am thankful for you. But even more important than just it feeling good is that it's a really powerful part of strengthening one another in the faith. That telling someone that God has used you in this in such and such a way, or that God is at work, I see God at work in your life, is a really powerful motivator for walking in love and good deeds. Because God knows that we need encouragement. God, he made us to, um, to be encouragers and to receive encouragement from one another. Right? We see that in Genesis 3, when God makes, God makes the man and he says it's not good for him to be alone. And so he gives him Eve. Because right, he means for them to be in relationship with one another, to be encouragers and to receive encouragement. Right, but since the fall, our, our desire for encouragement is out of whack. Right, because our desire for encouragement has skyrocketed. Right? We want people to be um, you know, kind of patting our egos, but then we don't necessarily know how to receive encouragement well, and then we're really bad at giving encouragement. So we're just, like, God made us to be encouragers and to receive encouragement, but it's all out of whack now. And one of the reasons why God gives us the church is as a rehab in our lives as encouragers so that we can learn how to encourage one another well and to be encouraged in our faith, to be encouraged in our walks with Christ. So if you want to grow as an encourager, the church is a great place to do it. Right, to, that we are called to be part of the body of Christ in order to be encouraged in our faith and in order to encourage one another. And this starts, A, by just being part of the body of Christ, being part of the church, but then also by just asking yourself, who in your life needs to hear encouragement? Who has God placed you in such a way that you can be an encouragement to them, that you can say, hey, I am thankful to God for you because of this. So God has called us to this ministry of encouragement. And if we look a little closer at verse 11, 
we can see that this ministry of encouragement has a purpose, on which we've hinted at a little bit. Verse 11 says, Paul is saying, he wants to come just so that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. That the goal of our encouragement is to strengthen one another's faith. Hebrews 10, 24 says it this way. It says, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. So that Hebrews actually uses the opposite imagery of Romans. So Paul here, he says he wants to strengthen them. The idea is of setting something up to never be moved. The author of Hebrews actually uses the opposite, right? To stir up would be to kind of, you know, get stuff, get stuff moving. But they're saying the same thing, right? They're getting at this idea that, the, that encouragement is meant to be a way for us to strengthen one another, for us to grow in our faith, to grow in faith, love, and good deeds. And this is important. Understanding the purpose of encouragement is important because it helps us to reframe our encouragement. Right? Just telling a coworker to keep up the good work just because you know, it makes them feel good, it makes you look nice, is not the kind of encouragement that we're called to. But telling a coworker to keep up the good work in order to body, embody the love of Christ to them or encourage them in, in their faithfulness may be just, right, that may be just a way to um, embody the love of Christ to them. But at the same time, it also, so it helps to reframe our encouragement, but it also helps us to emphasize the right things as we encourage one another. That if our goal is to strengthen one another in faith, love, and good works, then it means being especially aware of those things that people do that are exercises of faith, love, and good works. That if you see someone loving their family well, to be intentional about telling them that, encouraging them in that. If you see someone who's quick to serve others, right, to, to let them know that you see that in them, that God is at work turning them into a servant, right, a servant-hearted person. We, we always, always giving the glory to God, but never, never failing to point out to one another the ways that God is at work in our lives. I think just kind of the last reason why this is important, why we, it's good to understand the, the per, that the purpose of encouragement is to strengthen one another, is I think it, it reminds us that sometimes the truths that we need to hear really are, are the, one, the comforting truths, the truths that are, that are encouraging and uplifting. I think in, in Reformed churches especially, I know in my own heart, I have this, this tendency to focus so much on sin and the idea of total depravity that we get it caught in the mindset that the best way for me to help you at any moment is for me to point out your sin so that you can, you know, root it out of your life and change. And I know I get caught up in that trap, but I think one of the beauties of this is that sometimes the truths that we really need to hear are just that, that God loves us, that he has sent Jesus for us, that we are made in his image, that we are beautifully and wonderfully made, and that God is at work in our lives, and that sometimes we do get it right in small, stumbling ways. And so that's why it's important that we encourage each other. God calls us to it in order to strengthen one another's faith. And that's why it's the first thing on Paul's travel agenda in this text. But then in verses 13 through 15, he moves on to the second thing. 
evangelism. So in, in, in describing this calling to the ministry of evangelism, Paul is focusing on the reasons why he wants to come and share the gospel. And he uses three words specifically. And we're going to use that as kind of our, because um, I think it helps to, um, those three words are kind of at the heart of these verses here. So we're going to walk through those. The words are obligation, eager, and then ashamed. And all three of these are tied to our own motivation to share the gospel and to evangelize. So the first word that Paul uses in verse 14, he says, I am under obligation both to Greeks and to, uh, and to barbarians, both to the wise and to foolish. So Paul acknowledges God's call on his life to share the gospel. Now, for Paul, this call was a little bit special, right? Because he had been, right, obviously called by God in a, um, you know, where he could hear God's voice calling him to go and share the gospel with the Gentiles. For, um, but that doesn't make his call to share the gospel unique. Because it's something that we are all called to as believers. Um, so this, this word, obligation, that Paul uses, it's tied to the idea of a debt or of being entrusted with something. So the idea that Paul is getting across is that he has been entrusted with the gospel. And because he's been entrusted with the gospel, he is um, under an obligation to go and share the gospel with others. Well, if you are a Christian, then you too have been entrusted with the gospel, which leaves you an an obligation to share the gospel with other people. Because we are all servants of Christ who have experienced his mercy, who have experienced his grace. But along with that, we have been entrusted with this gospel that we are called to carry to other people. So Paul starts, his first word is obligation. And the second word that Paul uses to describe his desire to preach the gospel in verse 15 is eager. He says, so I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. For Paul, sharing the gospel is what got him out of bed in the morning. He was pumped to, at the thought of, of being able to tell people about Jesus. And I, I know, we, I'm sure, I know I have known people who were like that, who just, what got them up out of bed, what got them excited was the thought of sharing the gospel, of that they could tell someone about Jesus and bring someone to faith in Christ. That was Paul. Paul had been called by God, and he'd been equipped to do the ministry of evangelism, and that was what he loved. It's what drove him around the Mediterranean, sharing the gospel. All of us, if we understand the gospel, should have an eagerness to share it with others. That may not mean that you look like Paul. You, evangelism may not be what gets you up out of bed in the morning. It may never be what gets you going, what gets you excited, but the question is, would you be excited to have the opportunity to share the gospel with someone? Are you, is the gospel important enough in your life that you would be willing to have an uncomfortable or awkward conversation with someone in order to share it? See, Paul was eager to share the gospel because he knew the power of the gospel for salvation in his own life. And that's where evangelism has to start. It has to start with understanding God's salvation in your own life, by preaching the gospel to yourself, by understanding your own sin, understanding your own need for grace, 
builds up this eagerness to share that with other people who are sinners, who need God's grace. And then the third word that Paul uses is ashamed, which is sort of the, the flip side of what he's been saying. And notice the, there's actually kind of a, a very logical progression here. So Paul starts by saying that he's obligated to preach the gospel. But obligation doesn't necessarily imply that it's something you want to do. And so he says, I am eager to share the gospel. And part of what, he, and then he says, the reason I'm eager, part of that is because I'm not ashamed of it. And there's a, I actually think there's a, a weird encouragement here, maybe a little bit backwards, that, that embarrassment over evangelism is as old as the gospel itself. That Paul, in several places in his letters, says, I am not ashamed of the gospel. Or he encourages someone else, don't be ashamed of the gospel. And he says it often enough to make it clear that this was something that he faced. Whether it was a temptation in his own life or something that he encountered from other people, Paul encountered people who were ashamed of this temptation to be ashamed of the gospel. And it's, a, it's an embarrassment that has continued to our own day. And I think it lives on in our own hearts. That we're tempted to be ashamed of the gospel and tempted to be embarrassed by evangelism. Right? Whether it's fear of being seen as outdated, fear of losing a friendship, it's easy for us to become embarrassed by the good news. But I think that Paul here, so there's a plethora of you know, several reasons why you could be um, embarrassed to do evangelism or why it might make you feel ashamed. But I think Paul is getting at one, um, one cause of that in particular. And it's tied into Paul's statement that the gospel is the power of God for salvation to all who believe. See, I think we have this tendency, subconsciously maybe, to group people into one of two categories. There are those who don't really need the gospel because they're they're good people. They love you know they're they love people well. They're you know they're basically good. And those who are beyond the reach of the gospel, who you know they don't really want it. They wouldn't want to hear it anyway, right? So we put people into these two categories, and what that does is it leaves the gospel impotent, with no power. And I'm not saying that we do this consciously, although Paul in his day faced it consciously, right? So that was exactly what the Jews of his day were doing, that you, they divided the world into Jews and Greeks. And so if you were a Jew of that time, the idea was you're a Jew, you have the law, you're a good person. You don't, so they would have looked at the gospel and said, I don't really need that, I'm, following, I'm keeping the law. But then you, they would have looked at the Greeks and said, well, if they really wanted to follow God, they would already be Jews. They'd already be following the law. So, you know, what's the, you know they don't, they're not going to accept your gospel thing. All right, so Paul encountered this very explicit dividing of the world, the two people, this very explicit legalism of just saying that, hey, what you really need is the law. What you really need is to obey. But what Paul is saying is that there is no one who doesn't need the gospel. There is no one beyond the reach of the gospel either. And here's where that phrase, the power of God for salvation, kicks in. 
Because if the gospel is just the way of salvation or the path of salvation, then ultimately it comes down to human effort and finding that path, right? And so if you're, it becomes way easier to divide, right? It comes down to human works, and it becomes way easier to divide people into those two groups of people who are good people who don't need it to people who, are, um, who don't really want it anyway. And the way this impacts our evangelism is that if the gospel is just the way of salvation or the path of salvation, it means that evangelism becomes about convincing people to take that path, about convincing people to take that way. But Paul doesn't say that. He says that the gospel is the power of God for salvation, not just the way of salvation, but the power of God. This means that in our efforts to share the gospel, it, we don't bring the power. It doesn't come down to our attempts to have this great presentation or to have the best apologetic arguments. And both of those things have their place, but they are not the power of God for salvation. The gospel is. And it means that when we share the gospel, when we evangelize, all we need is the gospel. It's the gospel message. It doesn't require fancy strategies, just the gospel. So uh, I don't know if y'all are familiar with Christopher Hitchens. He's one of the um, famous, there's one of the new atheists, Richard Dawkins, Sam Harris, those guys. And so famous for being, for hating religion and being very dogmatic about, um, you know, the, the scientific variability of atheism or whatever, I don't know how he would put it. But um, so he died of cancer several years back. And after his death, there was a book, an, a biography written about him by a, a believer who had become friends with him through his lifetime. And he wrote this biography. And the kind of the... The climax, if you will, was a moment that this, um, this friend of Hitchens, Larry Taunton, had an opportunity to share the gospel with him. So they were, this was, they were taking a car ride, a road trip from Birmingham, Alabama to, I think, Montana, somewhere in the northwest. And so Taunton came and he's like, we're going to be on this road trip. This is my chance. At this point, they knew he had cancer. So uh, Hitchens, you know, he only had, his days were numbered. So I want you to put yourself in that situation. You're going to be in the car for several days with a man who is famous for hating Christianity and having strong intellectual resistance against the faith. Like, what, what would you do in that situation? Right? Run to your, to your John Frame or your Ravi Zacharias or maybe just curl up into a ball and just get, it through, get through those couple of days. Um, but what I love is that's not what he does. He pulls out his Bible the Gospel of John, he says, hey, would you, you want to read this with me? Can we talk? So they read the Gospel of John, and they talk about it, right? He doesn't have this fancy strategy. He doesn't have these great arguments. He simply walks through the Gospel with him. Um, and I just, I love that, because he understands that evangelism isn't about, right, this great presentation. All it requires is the Gospel itself. And that takes us into our third point, Paul's... Um, you know, the third section of this text, of verses 16 and 17. Um, that the gospel is at the heart of both encouragement and evangelism. Most commentators agree that verses 16 and 17 are sort of Paul's thesis for the rest of the book of Romans. So for the next 15 chapters or so, Paul is just going to be expounding what the gospel is, 
and what the implications of that are. So, he's so here, but here in verses 16 and 17, he's laying out the essence of the gospel in a couple of sentences. So here he introduces ideas like the righteousness of God, salvation, Jew and Greek, faith, which just a little uh, kind of language tidbit, I guess, if you will. This was something that was completely new to me. But So if you see uh, in your English Bible, faith and believe and belief, those are the exact same word in Greek. So they're completely interchangeable. So just like, don't let that confuse you if you're ever, it's like they talk about faith and then belief. Um, okay, so he's getting, he's kind of introducing these different ideas here, Paul. And all of which he'll expound on in the rest of the book. He continues to expound on what the gospel is. But here he's saying that the heart of the gospel message is that there is a righteousness that is available apart from good works. There's a righteousness from God that we cannot earn, that comes only from faith in the death of Jesus Christ. And Paul's going to go on to describe how God expects moral perfection from us, right? That's what righteousness is. It's just moral goodness. But God expects us to be perfectly righteous. And not only are we not perfect, but we are dead in our sins and wicked throughout. Right? That we are born in sin. But that God in his grace provides a righteousness for us through the righteousness of Christ. The righteousness of God that Paul refers to in verse 17 is the righteous life that Christ lived that can be ours through, through God, by God's gift and through faith in Christ. So that when God looks at us, he doesn't see our own sin, but Christ's goodness. He doesn't see the, the gross, the sinful life that we have lived. He sees the perfect life that Christ lived on our behalf. And if we are trusting in Christ, that is how God sees us. And the gospel message is this, that we cannot live a holy life on our own, but that God accepts us based on the holy life of Christ. So in verses 16 and 17 here, Paul is giving his thesis. He's setting up the rest of the book, but don't miss that he's also, um, this also applies back to what he's been saying. Because Paul is saying that this is the gospel that he's coming to preach. This is the gospel that he's coming to share with unbelievers and that he's coming to encourage them with. And so when we think of our calling as believers to the ministries of encouragement and evangelism, the content, the message of both of those ministries has to be the gospel. So Jeff said last week that we need to reject the idea that the gospel is something you graduate from. And I would say amen to that and just expound on it with this, that it's not a box that you check and move on from. It's more like a friend who gives you their credit card when they see that you're in dire straits financially, that you can't pay off your house, that you can't afford food, the table, or clothes for your kids. So they give you their credit card and they say, hey, take this, this is yours, go get what you need. Right? There will, when they give you that, there will come a day where there is, there's food on your table, the house is paid off, you know, you have clothes and everything you need, but the money is never yours, right? No matter how long you are a believer, the righteousness is never yours. It's Christ, and it's a gift to you. 
And so that means that if you're an unbeliever, right, for unbelievers who've never stepped foot into church, the message that they need to hear is that the righteousness of God is a gift that comes by faith in Christ. If you're a believer, if you've been a believer your whole life, but you're struggling to live with the failure of living up to your own expectations or the expectations of others, the message that you need to hear is that the righteousness of God is a gift that comes by faith in Christ. And when you feel guilty because you're stuck in the same pattern of sin, the message that you need to hear is that the righteousness that God accepts is a gift that comes by faith in Christ. When everything is great, when you've loved your family well this week, when you, or things are great at work, maybe you even had the chance to share the gospel with a friend. In that moment, the message that you need to hear is that the righteousness of God is a gift that comes by faith in Christ. Right? Whoever you are, wherever you are this morning, the message that you need to hear is the message of God's grace. I'll just Let me close with this story about it's one of those sermon illustrations that I've heard in different places and has kind of made its way. I think it's just one of those things that makes its way around the, the PCA. Um, but it's about a pastor in Boston, or he was in Boston at the time, named Gordon McDonald. So he was the head of the ministry InterVarsity, uh, kind of was, I think at this time, already a well-known pastor, had written books, and by all appearances was a godly man. And But then it came out that he'd had a moral failing, that he had an adultery and was stepping down. And so the story goes that there was a pastor in Chattanooga who heard this, saw Gordon McDonald, and thought, if he, a godly man like him, can fail in that way, what is to keep me from failing? And so he um, called up Gordon McDonald and said, I'm coming to Boston. I want to get lunch with you. And so they sat down, they were across the table, uh, and the young pastor says, Look, you look like such a godly man. You look like you love your wife. Look, I don't want to make the same mistake that you did. So tell me what happened. Um, Gordon McDonald's response was a question. He said, do you believe that there's enough evil in your heart to destroy a thousand worlds? Um, and the young pastor said, well, yes, of course. You know, I'm reformed. I believe in total depravity. Yeah, I believe there's enough evil in my heart to destroy a thousand worlds. And Gordon McDonald's response was, he said, I forgot that. And his point was that we are never beyond, to a point where we can ignore our sin. We're never to a point where we can claim our righteousness as our own. That we are always leaning on Christ's righteousness. So wherever you are this morning, wherever you're going through, the message that you need to hear is that the gospel is the power of God for salvation to all those who believe. Because the righteousness of God is a gift that comes by faith in Christ. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we thank you um, so much for your grace and for uh, your love for us, that you were willing um, to send your son to die so that we could live to um, save us from the, the power of sin, the judgment of sin in our lives. And Lord, now as we leave here, we pray that you that, that gospel message would take deep root in our hearts, that we would, we would know our sin, that we would know your grace, and that you would be at work in our hearts through that. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.